All right. Hi, and welcome to Red Reviews, uh, the podcast where we talk about uh, books, uh, be it leftist theory or, or, or a variety of other books with uh, Justin Clark. Thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. It's always great. Right on. So I guess, um, yeah, Before, without too much uh, preamble, what are we covering today? <laughs> yeah. So, um, <clears throat> so today we are talking, we're going, we're sort of going back to our roots a little bit to talk about um, atheism. On this podcast before, we have covered um, one of the sort of new atheists. We talked about Daniel Dennett's book, Breaking the Spell, which I didn't like very much. Right. And I was asked um, by Rod Bradford, the editor of The Truth Seeker, if I would be interested in running something on Christopher Hitchens for the newest issue of The Truth Seeker, which will coincide with publishing an excerpt of a new book that's coming out by, oh God, I think his name is maybe Matt Johnson or something like that. But it's a book called How, okay. How Hitchens Can Save the Left, is what the book is called. Um, okay. And, <laughs> but I mean, by the left in that title means like left liberals. Democrats. It's, yeah, it's not, it's like mainstream left liberal opinion. It's not what we think of as being left. Right, uh, right. You know, Um but he said, would you want to do a, uh, a retrospective on God is not great? And I said, sure. You know, that'd be fun. You know, and I I found a cheap copy of it. And I was like, okay, let's let's do this. Let's go through it and see if it holds up. Because the first time I ever read um, God is not great, how religion poisons everything by Christopher yep. Hitchens. Um, the first time I ever read this book was like in 2009. Um, yeah, I was, it was, that sounds about right. <laughs> I was... Um, I was a freshman in college. Uh, it was around the time where I was discovering sort of the history and the philosophy of atheism. Um, I think I've told this story before um, on a podcast that we did with Damien Marie at Hope. But, you know, when I was I, I grew up non-religious, um, my parents were, were pretty secular people. They weren't explicitly non like atheists, but they were just not interested all that much in religion. So I didn't grow up with it. Um, and in high school, I kind of discovered what atheism was. And I was like, oh, well, well, that's me. I mean, that's me. I don't, I don't believe in God. Don't think God exists. And realized that there's this whole sort of literature out there about the history of atheism. Um, at the time, Christopher Hitchens was still alive. Um, he died of cancer in 2011. Um, and, uh, you know, this book was published in 2007. So it kind of, there were a spate of books that came out all at the same time. So, yeah. that, you know, there was the God delusion by Richard Dawkins, uh, uh, the, what's it? The end, end of faith. Re- yeah. End of reason or end of faith. Sorry. Yeah. End of faith, not end of reason. The end of faith, um, uh, by Sam Harris, uh, uh, breaking the spell by Daniel Dennett and God is not great. Um, in reading this book, you know, nearly, you know, 15 years later, um, and, you know, you know, 16 years since its publication, I kind of think it's the best of these books. Um, and I think that it, and, and basically the reviewers of these books of the, of, of God is not great kind of had the same view of it where they were like, and then the other book that we'll be talking about tonight is kind of a response to it. Um, okay which is uh, Reason, Faith, and Revolution, Reflections on the God Debate by Terry Eagleton. Eagleton um, is a 
Marxist and a Marxist literary critic. Um, and his politics definitely line up closer to me than Christopher Hitchens is did. Um, okay. So, um, but, you know, in Eagleton's book, he talks about how reading Christopher Hitchens's book was, was good. Like it was an enjoyable experience. You know, it wasn't completely like um, frustrating in the way that the God delusion was. I think looking back on it, I think that Terry Eagleton was really on the mark in terms of how I think turgid and tedious the God delusion is. Um, it's it's yeah. it's yeah. not the most fun book on the planet to read. It's you know it's not it doesn't have the kind of like the sort of learned human element that God is not great does. It doesn't right. have the sort of it doesn't have the sort of like more measured tone of say like Daniel Dennett. Um, and what Terry Eagleton does, cause he's kind of, he's always kind of funny and humor is a big part of what he does is he sort of lumps Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins together as one and sort of talks about them at the same time. <laughs> okay. And he calls them ditchkins. Throughout the ditchkins. Book, so throughout the book, oh, he calls throughout this, his book, he calls them ditchkins and okay. sort of responds to them. Um, so in general, I loved both of these books for different reasons. Um, I think that I think that Christopher Hitchens' God is Not Great is his most enduring work. I think it's his most evergreen book. It's the one that anybody can go to and read at any time and get something from. I think, mm -hmm. excuse me, I think some of his other books are more, they're more topical and they don't hold up as well. So like, you know, even though, or they do hold up, but they're sort of very specific and they're right. He's writing about a very specific thing, whether right, it's, right. you know, writing about Henry Kissinger or he's writing about Mother Teresa or he's writing about Bill Clinton. Right. And, and or on the Thomas whole, Jefferson, or Thomas or, Jefferson yeah. or Thomas Paine. Right. So yeah. for those, he sort of slams, you know, the, the, you know, his book on Kissinger is great. His book on Bill Clinton is great. His book on Mother Teresa is excellent. It's like the go-to book to sort of debunk, the myth of mother Teresa because she wasn't this like sweet, you know, kind charitable person. She was actually, um, as Hitchens calls her a fraud, a fanatic and a fundamentalist, which is true. Um, <laughs> yep. she was obsessed yep. with her idea of the cult of suffering. So, you know, her homes for the dying in Calcutta where she was from, um, she, uh, you know, they didn't like, these weren't like hospices, that was not their intention to help people, to give them good medical care. You know, oftentimes these houses of the dying were staffed by, you know, as Hitchens called it, you know, severely poorly educated nuns. Um, and, you know, he has a great passage in the book where he's quoting somebody who had worked with Mother Teresa about how they didn't sterilize needles the right no. way. So what they would do is they would just run them under hot water and they thought that would sort of sterilize them enough and then reuse them. Which is like a huge no-no. Um, and so, you know, her thing was not to alleviate suffering. Her thing was to sort of con sort of perpetuate suffering as a means to be closer to God. Yeah, um, yeah. Also, the other thing, too, is like if you read her letters, you know, she died in 1997. So she's been gone a long time. But in her letters that sort of came out later where she was even doubting her own faith. You know, she, you know, oh, so, you know, it's very clear that, you know, she was not a great person by any stretch of the imagination. So when people use like her as like the er example of like a good right. person, like that's yeah. a terrible thing. Right. Yeah. And, you know, in, in his reflections upon Mother Teresa, um, 
in the episode that he of of Penn and Teller's bullshit that he's in because that's how I learned about Christopher Hitchens was was Penn yeah. and Teller did an episode of bullshit which was a show they did kind of debunking things and they did an episode called Holier Than Thou where they talked about Mother Teresa Gandhi and the Dalai Lama right that's a very interesting episode because they both they talked to Christopher Hitchens and they also talked to Michael Parenti so it's a very <laughs> interesting thing because because they have Parenti on to talk about the Dalai Lama because, you know, right. um, because Parenti's kind of like the guy who has written the, I think, essential critique on the Dalai Lama and the Lama class in Tibet in general. Right. So, you know, because in general, I think that if you look at Tibet as an idea, you know, the sort of free Tibet thing that became very big in the nineties, right. People often associate with celebrities or like bands like Radiohead and stuff like that. Um, the problem with the whole free Tibet, Tibet thing is that essentially if if the Dalai Lama were to come back and were to be a part of sort of reclaiming the, the Lama class system as it existed, you know, pre-communism, uh, um, it would essentially be reinstituting serfdom, that there would be a yeah. Lama class that would lord over a huge amount of people and uh, and would essentially continue to um, – keep these people in poverty and while they lived in, in wealth and opulence, um, yeah. you know, and all the name yeah. of the spiritual yeah. thing, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's all about sort of maintaining a hierarchy based on some developmental notions of spirituality. Um, yeah. So with Hitchens, you know, I think that he is somebody who, regardless of his own, political evolution, which of course I pretty much reject, um, you know, uh, (laughs) is that he was somebody who, um, I think genuinely did have a a, a genuine concern for humanism as a broader concept. I think that he cared about his own sort of conceptions of human rights and human dignity. He cared Mm -hmm. about the, the, the necessity of having a society based upon reason and compassion, which I think we all agree with. Um, yeah. I think all of those things are fairly universal and that we can agree with them. Um, so for those who don't know, cause I mean, I think we've hit a place now where there are going to be people who may not even know who Chris Richards is. Yeah, I suppose. Yeah. So um, Chris Richards, he's been dead long enough. He's been gone <laughs> now for 12 years, almost 12 years. Yeah. So, and his memory I think is starting to fade as, you know, cause I don't know, how, cause that's my curiosity is whether or not younger people are, are people who like discovering his book at 19, the way I discovered his book at 19, like whether or not people are doing that. I think they probably are, but I don't think that he, his, his work hits the sort of cultural zeitgeist in the way that it once did. And part of that's just because right. he's dead, yeah. you know, um, I don't think he has the same sort of cultural punch that he sort of did when he was around. I think Gore Vidal is the same way because I think they're very similar. But anyway, um, he was a journalist. He was a literary critic. Um, He was a um, essayist. I think his, his, um, his essays are some of the most, I think, intelligent and entertaining reads ever. 
Um, I think the only person who probably wrote the modern essay better than Hitchens is probably Gore Vidal. And honestly, Hitchens right. learns how to, learned how to do it from Gore Vidal. There you go. Um, and yeah. they, but, you know, and he was somebody who had considered himself a leftist. He was loosely affiliated with Trotskyist organizations in the 1970s. He wrote for the New Statesman, which was a left publication for the 70s and 80s. He wrote for The Nation. And so he was on the political left for most of his career. And somewhere around 9-11, something switched in him, where he sort of went from being a leftist to being essentially a neoconservative. Although I think that's that's even p- painting too nice <laughs> a brush, because Hitchens, I think, was somebody who never really fit into neat boxes. I don't think he was ever somebody who really fit into clear political labels. Um, right. But I do think that it's not out of the realm of possibility to say that he veered to the right. And that was pretty much it. And part of that was his defense of the war in Iraq, which I think is in general indefensible. And he had a very public, um, he had a very public parting of the ways with Gore Vidal over this question. So Gore Vidal sort of admired Hitchens very much. Um, The nickname that Gore Vidal, it's, it's always unclear whether Gorbachev gave it to Hitchens or Hitchens sort of said it and then Vidal agreed. But he, you know, Vidal had called Hitchens his Dauphin, meaning sort of the prince or the heir. He was somebody sort okay. of the heir and parrot to what Gorbachev did. And um, that mixture of sort of learned education, but because that's the thing that's interesting about Gorbachev is that he never went to college. You know, he was a guy mm-hmm. who went to you know, he went to Felix Exeter, Exeter Academy, very high up prep school in the New England, and then he went to the army, and then he just started writing, and he never went to college. Whereas Hitchens was Oxford educated and had a college, you know, had a college background. I think that's the big difference. But but they do have a falling out over the war in Iraq, um, which Vidal was vehemently against uh, for all of the right reasons, which we, <laughs> which we'll get into when we do his book Imperial America later in the year. Um, okay. Because it's, you know, I've been putting off doing the Gore Vidal episode for far too long. I want to talk about <laughs> it so bad because he's somebody who, like, I think is is an even better version of what Christopher Hitchens was. Like, right. if Gore Vidal had ever written his version of God is Not Great, I think it would have been even better than Hitchens' book. Right. Now, Gore Vidal kind of did write his own version of this, but he didn't write it in a book form. He wrote it in an essay form called Monotheism and Its Discontents, which is an excellent essay that he wrote in the early 90s. Cool. Um, and so, you know, Vidal did write about this and pretty much had the same opinions about religion that, that Hitchens did. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, anyway... So Hitchens was somebody who took on high-profile figures. He took on Mother Teresa, he took on Bill Clinton, he took on Henry Kissinger. Well, he kind of taken on anybody, so everybody. So who else was he going to take on? Well, he took on God. He's kind of like Vince McMahon. Like there was a time in (laughs) wrestling where Vince McMahon decided his opponent was going to be God. So there's literally a match in WWE between Vince McMahon and God. And of course, Vince McMahon wins. Of course. You know. But because um, it's, it's his fucking show, right? <laughs> but anyway, you know, it, he's it, it's like they had like a little like spotlight that would just kind of come down the ramp to the ring. Yeah. So he's like fighting. <laughs> he's like shadow boxing with a spotlight, and that's and, and in some respects, that's kind of how Terry Eagleton sees what Chris Richards is doing with this book. Okay. Um, 
I never really thought about that until now. And I actually think that's a fairly accurate description. Um, but what does Hitchens mean by religion poisons everything? Because I think that's the, that's the tricky part of the book is why does he say that? Well, essentially, he, he argues that if you look at the history of the human race and you look at the development of humanity over time, one of the single greatest impediments to peace, and prosperity, and progress is religion. And in that regard, I do agree with him. Um, right, I, I right. think that's true. Um, that's not to say that religion can't be a part of progress. It can. It's not to say right. that religion can't be a product of, of, of reason. It can be. Um, I have a but much... Thus far. <laughs> but thus far, <laughs> it's, it's, its demerits are far, far larger than its merits, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, and Hitchens very much saw that the same way. So he, you know, he sort of says it plainly in the beginning of the book where he talks about um, the, the issue about faith and why faith is such a problem, which, you know, I agree with that. I mean, you know, he said, you know, of all the supposed virtues, faith must easily be the most overrated, which I think is true. Um, I think that yeah. faith can absolutely be something that can be for, for good or ill. And sometimes it's definitely for ill. Yeah. He says, um, there still remain four irreducible objections to religious faith, that it wholly misrepresents the origins of man and, and the cosmos, that because of this original error, it manages to combine the maximum of civility with the maximum of solipsism, and that it is both the result and the cause of dangerous sexual repression, and that it is ultimately grounded on wish thinking, which, yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. Um, I think that- Seems pretty straightforward. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that seems pretty darn straightforward. And I think that- if you look at, I, I, I want to tease out a section of that that I find very interesting because Hitchens is one of the people who's very clearly and I think effectively articulated something about religion that is weird, um, that I think is a problem, which it is, it is the maximum amount of servility with the maximum amount of solipsism. So what does he mean by that? What he's essentially arguing for is that religion, um, you know, sort of people become very, you know, they sort of subject themselves to it, right? So they think of themselves as not worthy. You know, mm -hmm. I am, you know, I am but a poor vessel for God's glory or whatever, right? Where it's this sort of faux humility and servility right. that's kind of gross and degrading and dehumanizing, right? Because if you can get people to do that, you can kind of get them to do anything. I mean, I think that, you know, religions or, or cults or, you know, political cults or political ideologies, they can all do this where, you know, if you make you servile enough, then you will be willing to kind of do anything. Right. Um, it's that classic quote that's usually attributed to Voltaire, but it's not clear whether Voltaire ever said that or not. But you know, those who can make you, who can have you believe absurdities can have you commit atrocities. It's, there's a right, certain level yeah. of truth to that. Yeah. Um, but then it's mixed with the solipsism, which is, you know, egotism, narcissism, self-obsession. So religion is very self-abnegating in that it wants you to abandon your sense of self. You, you no longer are a clear individual with your own likes and dislikes and your own agency. But at the same time, you are one of the chosen people. You are one of, <laughs> right. you know, you are the, you are one of God's you know, onward Christian soldiers, right? You're one of those pure of heart that are the good people and everyone else is awful, right? 
Yeah, you know, right. Scientology does this too, where in Sci- Scientology calls anybody who isn't in Scientology a wog. Um, oh, yeah. So they're part of the wog world, right? It's it's like Harry Potter, like the Muggles thing, right? It's the, it's that whole thing of out creating an other, and there's an in group and an out group, and this is, I think, right. one of the pervasive problems of religion is creating that in group out group. A lot of the a lot of people like Terry Eagleton will focus on a lot of the good things about sort of um, people coming together for common causes and sort of helping their fellow man and so on. Sure, but. The problem is, is there's the other flip to that, which is people doing completely horrible things um, in the name of religion. Yeah. Uh, so, so essentially, he lays out a different. Uh, so he lays out different ways in which religion is messed up. So there's a chapter he has called "Religion Kills," where he responds to a thought experiment that was sort of brought to him by Dennis Prager of all people um, about, you know, if you saw a group of men leaving a prayer meeting, how would you feel about it? Uh, You know, would you feel safe watching a group of men leave a prayer meeting? Um, And Hitchens says, well, I can actually explain that to you very clearly in multiple different scenarios I've been involved in and they all are just in the letter B. So he, you know, he talks about Belfast, Ireland, and about how the the the, the religious conflicts there between Protestants and Catholics, and how that led to you know to terrorism and to vi- political violence and all of that. Yeah. He talks about Beirut and Lebanon and about the war between Lebanon and Israel, um, yeah. in largely in response to um, the continued encroachments by Israel upon Palestine. He talks about Baghdad and about how Saddam Hussein was this sort of ultimate theocrat, which is true, um, yeah. and a monster. And all of that's right. Um, Belgrade and Serbia. So he talks about you know the breakdown of, of um, Eastern Europe after the end of the Cold War and the atrocities that happened between um, the 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 Serbs and the Croatians and the Christians and the Muslims. So he he sort of lays out very clearly, I'm just giving you names of cities that start with B, and I can tell you what I've seen, and I can tell you that if I saw a group of men leaving a prayer meeting in any of these cities, I would be concerned. Right. (laughs) Um, Which I I think is is a a fairly decent point to make. Um, Where I think the problem with that chapter is, is I think it kind of flattens everything a little. So there are very deep political differences and ideological differences between these people that go beyond just religion. Right. Like um, there's the literal, like the actual material conditions that are exactly. different. Exactly. <laughs> and I think this is the general problem throughout Hitchens's book is that it's kind of, devo- for a man who wrote about politics, the book is fairly apolitical and that it's, or it's, right. it's not like it, it doesn't, it's sort of general attitude is not one of here's my specific political program of what I'm arguing for. You know, because mm-hmm. he sort of the sort of what do we do with religion thing? He doesn't spend that much time with. He spends more right. of his time sort of critiquing religion and leaves the last few pages of the book to sort of explain what he ar- argues for, which is this idea of a new enlightenment that's where every person is involved in becoming more rational and critical and and a critical thinker and 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 kind to one another. Sort of makes that argument, which is a good argument. I agree with it. But it's kind of it's kind of universal. It's not very specific. Um, so I think that is one of the critiques of this book is that it's it's not written as like a like this is not my philosophical treatise on religion. This is this is a polemic, and right, that's what Hitchens right. was good at. 
He was yeah. a polemicist at heart. He's there to he's there to educate you, but he's also there to sort of galvanize you. Yeah. He's there as much to to sort of sort of you know uh, gather the forces as much as he is trying to teach you something. And I think that's what makes the book entertaining and fun in, in a way that the other sort of new atheist books are not because they don't have the kind of, they don't have the kind of learned, interesting tone that Hitchens has where he knows a lot more about history than they do. He knows yeah. a lot more about literature than they do. And in some re some respects, he knows more about religion than they do. So it's, it's this, it's more interesting, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like you say, like when you think about like, uh, I, I always kind of thought of like the, the four horsemen as like, uh, I mean, you had Dennett and Hitchens and then the, uh, the other two. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that's a fair point, you know, and I was pretty hard on Dennett's book, but partly because I think the idea of memes as a science is bullshit, but, and it clearly is bullshit. And we debunked that in one of our first episodes. It's like episode. Right. Two. Right. Um, and you can also read a more outlined version of that on my blog. Um, but, but yeah, so, so that's what, so that's what makes Hitchens, I think, more interesting than them is that he's, mm -hmm. he knows exactly what he's doing. He's not trying to like, he's not trying to do this like deep, real deep philosophical stuff, although he's doing some of that. Right. Um, you right. Know, he's, he's just laying out like, these are the cases of why. Yeah. Religion is bad. Right? And here's like, the common arguments for why God exists and here's why they're bullshit. Right. So he lays yeah. out like, what is the problem with the sort of um, the, the sort of arguments from design? He has a chapter devoted arguments from design. He talks about mm -hmm. William Paley and, you know, you know, natural theology where, where Paley, you know, had this thought experiment that if a person found a watch on a beach, you wouldn't think that it was sort right. of naturally created. You you would think of it as being something that had been made, you know, a, you know, a watch needs a watch maker. Right. right. And Hitchens pretty lays, lays out pretty clearly that that's kind of bullshit. I mean, first off, yeah, yeah you could say, yeah, it's, you found it on a beach, but the thing about a watch is you can even use the watch example to debunk it. So like, watches are made out of different types of components. Some watches have different components than others. And some of the components are made in one place and some of them are made in another place and some are made in another place by completely different people. And they don't know each other. Yeah. And yet they're all working together, even though they don't know each other directly to build components that go into a watch together and then it's assembled. Nature kind of works the same way where like, you know, nature doesn't really have any like real teleology to it. It's just kind of doing it right. We are, yeah. we are just accidents. And there's nothing wrong with that, right? There's nothing wrong. Right. With it. Yeah. Um, and he, Hitchens has this little passage where he talks about Whitaker Chambers, uh, who almost nobody knows who Whitaker Chambers is today, and that's for good reason. But <laughs> but Whitaker Chambers was a former communist who became an arch conservative, and he he testified against people at the House on American Activities Committee. Um, you know, he wrote a book called Witness, where he lays out sort of leaving the communist movement. And he talks about Whitaker Chambers makes the, he talks about how seeing his his daughter's his baby daughter's ear for the first time convinced him there was a god and convinced him that like everything he kind of knew was wrong. And Hitchens Please. sort of says the point <laughs> of saying like I've I have two daughters myself or I have a daughter I have two daughters <laughs> myself I've seen my daughter's ears as a baby they I are, remain unconvinced they are cute <laughs> they're quite cute. 
But he says yeah. a couple of things. He said, you know, there's two things I often think about when I see my babies here. First off, they might need a little bit of a cleaning. And the second is that despite them being kind of a miracle, all the years kind of look the same. You know, we all yeah. kind of look, humans all look, we're all kind of alike. We're there, you know, it's, it's, you know, there's we're all human shaped. We're all kind of human shaped. <laughs> like ears do kind of all look alike. You know, we all do kind of look factory made, even though, and in some respects we are, it's just the factory of nature. Yeah. Um, yep. And so, you know, he just, I think it's, I think it's a cute little sort of aside to lay out why, you know, believing in God is kind of based on that particular argument is kind of silly because right. we know that things naturally arise all the time, you know, and whether it's, you know, we, we know about evolution and the way in which we've evolved over billions of years to be, you know, upright creatures who have the capacity for language. We were a sort of happy cosmic accident, happy or unhappy, depending on your perspective, you know, for maybe <laughs> right. the rest of the world, maybe we weren't particularly a good thing, you know, um, so Douglas Adams thing about, you know, in the beginning, he created the universe, which was seen as a bad, which was seen as a mistake. <laughs> yeah, largely seen as a huge mistake. It's a huge mistake. Yeah. So, so, you know, and he, he goes through the problems of the Bible and how, you know, the Bible is a tremendous amount of immorality in it, which is true, has a tremendous amount of contradictions in it, which is true that, that, you know, Jesus, you know, Hitchens was not convinced of the historicity of Jesus. Right. Um, Jesus may not be real. Um, you know, and I sort of, in my essay on Hitch, I sort of talk about Bart Ehrman sort of making the argument for Jesus's existence and yeah. sort of hedging his bets. And, you know, there may have been a guy named Jesus, but that's kind of incidental. Um, I always look at Jesus similar to Socrates. Like there's no direct evidence of Socrates either. All we know about Socrates, we know through Plato. Right. Yeah. So regardless of whether Socrates was real or not, that's not really the point. Um, yeah, the things people attribute to him are what matter, right? Right. Like, and Hitchens in the New Testament mentioned something that was research that was done by er by Bart Ehrman. That like one of the most iconic things about Jesus, the whole, you know, um, you know, those who are without sin cast the first stone. When he's talking mm -hmm. about sort of the prostitute and people wanting to kill this prostitute, and him saying, "Let those without sin cast the first stone." Jesus yeah. probably never said that. That was something that was right. added later on. Um, and so there's all this like myth around Jesus yeah. and Terry Eagleton will tell you that's kind of the point, but Hitchens, yeah. but Hitchens <laughs> doesn't like, you know, like, uh, you know, I think that Hitchens being a journalist and being somebody who sort of deals with reality a lot, right. um, is not somebody who, he reads the Bible very much like, I guess a fundamentalist would. Right, literally. Kind of like, reading it, it literally. Like yeah. and yeah. and the argument that people will make is like, well, well, believers do that too. And like, yeah, that's true to an extent. Yeah. But not really, in the sense that um everybody kind of picks and chooses what they like out of the Bible, right? So right. people say, like, oh, the book of Leviticus says, you know, that man should not lie with another man. Okay, fine. Okay, let's take that at face value. Um, are you okay with like stoning your kids? to death if they talk back to you do you wear mixed fabrics do you plant certain right. you plant certain foods next to each other well, you, you ignore those things so it's it's always a pick and choose from these people right um and he he has a really interesting part of the book about joseph smith and he talks about joseph smith the founder of mormonism 
um, that Joseph Smith was essentially a con man and Mormonism was his own version of a sex cult, which yep. is true. That's um, how it is. <laughs> and he, he died in a bar fight, you know, that he was, you know. So there's that. He talks about how um, there he has a chapter called There Is No Eastern Solution where he explains the problems with like Buddhism and and Hinduism doesn't really go into Hinduism all that much, but he does talk about um, the Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh, also known as Ocho um, or Ocho, um, who uh, was the subject of that documentary wild, wild country. um, If you watch that where the Bhagwan was this sort of religious mystical figure from India who um, sort of told people to leave their shoes and their brains at the door when they came to to one of his you know talks or whatever. Okay. Gives you a sense of kind of how this guy operated. Yeah. You know, sort of let go of your possessions while simultaneously has you know one of the largest fleets of Rolls Royce automobiles in existence. Of course. Um, yeah, of course, and that he tried to essentially take over a small town in Oregon. Uh, they built this religious community of his in Oregon, and they tried to take over the city council and they tried to poison people in the town. And yeah, it was, it was pretty intense <laughs> stuff. Watch the documentary wild, wild country. And you'll get a sense of that. Um, you know, so every once in a while you'll see like an Osho quote, like on Instagram or whatever, like an inspiring quote. And I'm like, people don't know who that is. Right. Um, uh, Hitchens also discusses in that chapter about how Buddhism was, was sort of molded in Japan to defend um, the the sort of suicide bombers of Pearl Harbor and Japanese fascism and imperialism, um, which is absolutely true. People think that Buddhism is like super peaceful when in reality it can be just as violent and brutal as any other religion. Yeah. Um, the version of Buddhism that we get in the West is a very filtered, very yeah. um, politically correct version of it, I think. Yeah. Um, and... He also has a really great chapter where he talks about morality and discusses about, he basically uses Martin Luther King as like an er example of somebody who was deeply moral. And mm-hmm. Hitchens argues that, well, his religion didn't really have anything to do with it. Because if you look at the people he was surrounding himself with, a lot of them were secular people who were also socialist or communist, which is true. Right. And Philip Randolph, yeah. who was one of the, you know, organizers of the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom in 1963 was an atheist and, or at the very least, he was an agnostic and he was also a socialist and a trade unionist. He was one of the sleeping car porter union organizers Um, or Baynard Rustin, who was sort of a secular Quaker um, who was also a socialist. He was also homosexual, which made it very difficult within the civil rights movement itself. Um, that was a hard thing to sort of square that circle because the country just wasn't there on that yet. Right. Um, so Hitchens makes the argument that, well, no, his humanism won out over his religion. And I think that's a bit of a cop out. I don't think that's really true. Um, this gets into the thing that drives me crazy, which is when people say, oh, Obama's not a Christian. Like Obama's an atheist. <laughs> like he's not really a Christian, you know. This is something Richard Dawkins used to say that like Obama right. was like the first atheist president. I'm like, that's not true. Obama's a religious man. If, if someone call, tells me that they are religious, I will take them at their word. I yeah, will believe that's right. them. Because who the fuck am I to say whether they are they or not religious? Then I think to say that hit, that Martin Luther King's religion didn't have anything to do with it 
which is this, which is basically what Hitchens is arguing in the book, is bullshit. Right. That's not true. Yeah. You know, yeah. there were there were theologians who were deeply influential on Martin Luther King, including people like, um, you know, Diedrich Bonhoeffer and Martin Niemöller and Reinhold Niebuhr um, and Gandhi, who was a religious figure in his own right, and obviously he's a bit of a mixed bag too. Watch the, <laughs> right. watch, watch the bullshit episode about Gandhi and Mother Teresa. You'll get a sense of how that's a little bit of a mixed bag. Yeah, um, yeah. And and so I do think it's kind of a, a, offensive to say that like, oh, well, his religion really didn't have anything to do with it. When it clearly yeah. did. And that there were versions of humanism that were religious in nature. You know, the humanist tradition of which I'm a part of started in religion. It didn't start yeah, secular. Right. It came yeah. out of the Christian tradition. It came from you know, the, the great Christian humanists of the Middle Ages and into the Reformation period, people like Erasmus, people like uh, uh, Mr. Eckhart and others who were theologians who had more of humanistic principles. Mm -hmm. They were part of that humanistic tradition and they were very religious. King was a part of that, right? Yeah. Um, so I, I just, I find that to be a bit facile. Yeah. And I don't agree. It it's really hard to like be the guy who says, yeah, I don't care what you say. Your faith isn't what you claim. Right. Yeah. It's like, you're trying, you're trying to yeah. read somebody's mind. Yeah. It's, it's, it it's so bad enough to wrong. try to read someone's mind. If they're a, while they're alive, it's even worse to yeah. do it when they're dead and they can't talk back <laughs> to you. Yeah, exactly. Which is, and the thing is, it's like Hitchens is not the only one who does this shit about Martin Luther oh, no. King. Yeah. Uh, Michael Shermer does too. So Michael Shermer, Michael Shermer's book, The Moral Arc, opens with basically the same argument that Hitchens has about Martin Luther King, that his humanism overrode his religion, which again, that's not true. Religion right. and humanism are not mutually exclusive. They were complementary to one another. Yeah. And the yeah. secular humanist tradition grew out of, like I said earlier, grew out of the religious humanist tradition. We share many of the same values, whether we're religious or not. This is where I'm very critical of Hitchens. I think it's it's him putting words in other people's mouths. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't mm -hmm. really have the right to do that. Like, I think that that's like not true, you know? Um, and so to say that, that Martin Luther King's humanism went out over his religion is nonsense. They were, his version of religion, which was humanistic, won yeah. out over a yeah. crappier version of politics or religion, which was the form of religion that defended slavery. Yeah, you know, that's right. He talks about how, you know, a lot of those who were abolitionists were secular or religious iconoclasts, which is true. Frederick Douglass is a good example of that. Um, you know, uh, you know, it's, yeah. it, he, there's that quote that's attributed to Frederick Douglass where it's like, you know, prayer never worked until I used my legs, meaning like walk, like running out of a bad situation. Um, but like Frederick Douglass's religious opinions were very iconoclastic, but they were religious opinions. Lincoln was the same way. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a section in God is not great about Lincoln. And I feel like um, he gets the basic facts right, but he gets the spirit of it wrong. Where, where like, yes, Abraham Lincoln never belonged to a church. That is true. But his writings are bathed in religious language, especially the later writings, like the second inaugural, um, yeah. which is essentially as, as much as a religious statement as it is a political statement. Lincoln wrote something 
that was very influential on the development of his second inaugural called the, the meditation on the divine will. And Lincoln was sort of a determinist. He, you know, he was, he was very, he would have very much believed in the adage that men make history, but not in their conditions of their choosing. Right. You know, and he even okay. said something very similar to that, which is that, you know, events have you know, shaped me more than I have shaped events. Right. And that's right. some of that's true. Um, so Lincoln was religious, but very iconoclastically religious. Same with Frederick Douglass. There were also a lot of religious people who were abolitionists. I mean, John Brown, yeah. probably the most famous abolitionist, was a full-blown Christian. Right. Some would argue a crazy-ass Christian, right? <laughs> um, uh, or if you look at somebody like um, – you think of somebody like William Gladstone in the UK, one of the leaders of the abolitionist movement in the UK, was deeply mm. moved to be an abolitionist by his religion. So this is the thing that I have a huge problem with where – Hitchens creates this sort of false binary where everything that's religious is horrible and everything that is secular is wonderful. Right. Right. And, and even though he, he, he provides nuance in the book, he hedges his bets at times. He shows why that's not necessarily the case. He then sort of retreats back into that binary where he's like, I'm going to put this in here just to sort of cover my ass. But in reality, I kind of think religion is all terrible. Right. And, there's a, there's a chapter of the book that I really liked where he does kind of go into some of this, and it's the chapter on um, the case against secularism, uh, and I think the subtitle of it's like a refutation anticipated or something like that. And one of the common arguments against, against you know, atheism is look at the horrible regimes of the 20th century that led to so much death and destruction. So many of them were guided by secularism, whether it's Nazi Germany or Stalinism. <laughs> that's not true. And that's also not true. <laughs> so he lays out why that's not true, right? Yeah. So yeah. he talks about the fact that one of the first things Hitler did when he came to power in 1933 was, was shore up the relationship between the Third Reich and yeah. the Catholic Church. And the, and the, the Pope at the time, I think was Pope Pius XII, um, Pretty much went along with it um, for most of it. Uh, Pope Pius XI and Pope Pius XII, because 11th died and then 12th took over. 12th was far more of a Nazi pope than the other one. Um, the first one sort of had his misgivings, but sort of went along with it for political expediency, which still makes him terrible. And then 12th was much more of a gung-ho, like, yeah, Hitler's my guy. Wrote him a special <laughs> birthday greeting and everything. And then in regards to Stalinism, right? I mean, you, I mean, you can argue that this sort of political degeneration of the Soviet Union in and of itself represented a personality cult. You know, it was the right. cult of Stalin, right? right? Or yeah. to a greater or lesser extent, the cult of Lenin, right? Because I write about this in the essay, right? I mean, you know, as somebody who collects like Lenin memorabilia, like I can tell you, you know, whether it was posters or statues or or, you know, books or whatever, there was this sort of creating this sort of national myth about Lenin or about Stalin, which is right. very much akin to, uh, you know, a religious myth of a religious figure. Yeah. So, you know, they weren't like, and especially like the Third Reich, like they were, they were in bed with the Catholic Church and they were also like way into either like traditional religious values or like weird occult shit, which they were also very much into. 
and the sort of Aryan race thing is very sort of occulty and pagan in its orientation. It's not secular. It's, I suppose if one's being super generous to the argument, you could say that removing religious beliefs from a culture could lead to a cult of personality type mentality or leave, leave the path open to it. Like it wouldn't necessarily lead that way. Yeah. But even then you're just, that's the most generous I can be, right? Like there's no guarantee that, uh, you know, that an, a secular world will become bad in these variety of ways. And there's no guarantee that it'll be good either. That's human right, beings. Right. I mean, yeah, this is the problem right. with sort of the cheap binaries is that yeah. you could build a perfectly secular society and be awful. Exactly. Right? Um, yeah. And if you want to look at an example of like a secular society, which which was kind of awful, you know, it was the Soviet Union towards the end, um, especially during the Stalinist period. Like you, you can make an argument that like, while at the same time, there was this astounding level of growth and the development of their country and people having more than they'd ever had before, there were millions of people that were left out of that equation altogether simply by yep. virtue of not being on the political team or being of a particular religious or ethnic group that didn't fit in with what Stalin wanted. The example that's, that Hitchens uses in the book is Lysenkoism, the sort of pseudoscience about uh, agricultural concerns in the Soviet Union that um, people argue sort of led to the deaths of millions. You think of like the Holodomor and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, there was also, you know, you can't challenge the dear leader, right? So if Stalin said, this is what it is, this is truth with a capital T, you weren't necessarily allowed to dissent. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and so that's fairly religious thinking to me. Yep. Um, yep. But I think that that is an argument that doesn't, work as well as I think it should. So like, if you look at, you know, people like um, Horkheimer and Adorno or Georg Lukács or others who sort of make argument about this, but even better is this idea that like, that we as a society, when all we cared about was instrumental reason, where it was just about what we could do and not what we should do, we became a society that was very much comfortable with gulags and death camps and the atomic bomb. That, that, that right. This was the logical outcome of your sort of scientific progress with a capital P version of the world. And right. pure reason without any values attached. Yes. Or, or, yeah. and, and to a certain extent, some of that's true. That, you know, sort of cold calculating reason, you know, as Lincoln once called it in his Lyceum address in 1838 – um, you know, that sometimes that can be really bad too, <laughs> you know, um, that it's if we, are, we have to safeguard, we have to be careful with, we right? talked we about, they think this the last time we talk about Hume, right? The yeah. reason ought to be the slave, of the passions. And what yeah. he meant by that was that your conscience should never be overridden by pure logic. Yeah, that's right. Or as Spock better said it, you know, logic is the beginning of wisdom, not the end, which is true. So, uh, so you know, and so in the end of the book, he sort of calls for a renewed enlightenment, argues for people that it's a fight, that we're fighting a civilizational war, which, you know, his book very much has like echoes of like, you know, the clash of civilizations, like Samuel Huntington kind of shit, where, okay. you know, we are the enlightened people of democracy and reason, and we're fighting against the the forces of darkness and irrationality and barbarism. 
just so happens that the people who fit on that side tend to be a very different shade than we are. Um, and so it tends to fall into this sort of parochialism or imperialism. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that's God is not great. In general, I think it's a pretty good book. I think that people, people who are interested in learning about like how atheists sort of think about the world. Like, I think it's a nice start. I don't think it's the end. I think that there are other books that people should check out that are complementary to what Hitchens wrote. So there's a great book by AC Grayling called the God argument. Um, where he spends the first half of the book refuting arguments for God. He spends the back half of the book sort of laying out his version of secular humanism. Um, There's a great book by Paul Kurtz called The Transcendental Temptation, which is another book that was written decades before Hitchens that does kind of the same thing. Um, You know, I used to recommend Atheism, The Case Against God by George H. Smith, but I don't argue, I don't, I don't recommend that one anymore because it's knee deep in libertarian bullshit. Um, and Ayn Rand nonsense. Yeah, so yeah. I don't, I don't, yeah. I don't recommend that one anymore. Um, yeah. and yeah, so there are, you know, there are books that have, have a better argument on top of it. So that's book Very one. Cool. Um, do you have any, do you have anything other uh, fi- final thoughts on Hitchens before we move on to the other book? It's just, it's interesting to go through it again. Like I read that book in, I think 2009, 2010, somewhere in there. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it was, I mean, it, it had a huge impact on me and I was a huge, like Christopher Hitchens, like we would call you, he'd call me a Stan. Yeah. You know, now. (laughs) Oh yeah. And and I was was hugely into his work and I watched hours and hours of him debating. Oh yeah. You know what they called it? The hitch slap, you know, that's right. The refuted argument. Um, And I don't, I mean, I think two, two, three people who have written like or discussed like Ayn Rand and like completely just blown her apart for what she was. One was Hitchens. There's a great quote. uh, There's a great sort of passage on YouTube where he talks about Ayn Rand. Um, And uh, he says something along the lines of it's really interesting in America that you could come with a philosophy which commit, which will compel an already selfish people to be more selfish. Right. <laughs> um, uh, and uh, Gore Vidal wrote about Ayn Rand in one of his books where he said you know, she, her, her, her writing is, is perfect in its immorality. Um, uh, Albert Ellis, who was a psychologist wrote a whole book debunking Ayn Rand, which is very good. Um, nice. So anyway, that was on my mind. I was just thinking about that, but, <laughs> but yeah, yeah no, I, 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 it's cool to go th- go back through it a little bit. Like I di- I haven't actually I didn't reread it for this, but it's it's interesting to have some reminders on on some of the stuff that was in there because it's been a long time. Yeah, and, and I don't think the book is perfect. I mean, I think that it's good. I don't think it's perfect. I think that there are I think there are very intelligent responses to it, which is, which leads us to talking about Terry Eagleton's book. Right. So Terry Eagleton's book was just as much fun to read as Hitchens. Um, he's funny. Hitchens isn't general. Hitchens can be funny, but it's much more in a dry way. Uh, Eagleton's much more silly, which I like that about him. Um, and so his book is, a sequence of lectures that he gave. Um, these were a part of the, um, let's see, these were the sort of Dwight Harrington foundation lectures on religion in the light of science and philosophy. So it's very similar to like the Templeton foundation kind of stuff. 
Um, and he 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 kind of lays it out in a few ways where his main issue with the sort of new atheists who he calls Ditchkins, he takes Hitchens name and Dawkins name and mashes them together. Right. Sometimes he refers to them separately and sometimes he sort of refers to them together. And so his book is sort of a refutation of Ditchkins, which is the two people, two authors, but also is just kind of the stand in for new atheism in general. Cause I think this book is kind of, in a lot of ways, kind of like the definitive, like in my book, like good critique of the new atheist movement. Like I think like, um, you know, I, I, cause I don't like John Gray. I think John Gray's a shit bag. And I think John Gray sucks. John Gray <laughs> totally sucks. Um, and like, I'm not really a big fan of Elaine de Botton. I'm not like, like I don't, but Eagleton is somebody I really like. I've read his book, um, Why Marx Was Right. Um, okay. So Eagleton is a Marxist. He's a socialist. And he makes, in many ways, the same argument uh, or similar argument that Slavoj Žižek makes, the Slovenian philosopher who also mm -hmm. identifies as a Marxist and Hegelian, which is that religion at its core should be a revolutionary project, that belonging to a religion belonging to a brotherhood of people or a sisterhood of people, collective, to fight for a better world. Because that's the point. Like in their view, it's a liberation theology, which right. Hitchens dismissed as being absurd and him, him thinking it's absurd is absurd. There is a form of liberation theology that's deeply powerful. You think of right. somebody like Cornell West is a good example of the sort of liberation theology. Um, and, uh, or, uh, Father Moran. Yeah, I mean, yeah. there's there's good cases of, like you say, liberation theology or like people using their religious belief to uh, push them towards, you know, treating people well and uh, changing society for the better. It, it happens quite often. Yeah. <laughs> and he opens the book with um, a sort of clarion call for the political left. Um, so his, his book is very much written from the perspective of the left. It's a book that's okay. very, un, con, you know, contrary to Hitchens' book, which is kind of devoid of politics in general, Eagleton's book is extremely political, um, which is why I liked it. Um, yeah. yeah. I think it's political in ways that Hitchens' book should have been, but Hitchens wasn't like that. So here's a quote about him sort of talking about the left. If I, tr if I try in this book to ventriloquize, when I take to be a, what I take to be a version of the Christian gospel relevant to radicals and humanists, I do not wish to be mistaken for a dummy, but the Jewish and, Christ, and Christian scriptures have much to say about some vital questions, death, suffering, love, self-dispossession, and the like, on which the left has, for the most part, maintained an embarrassed silence. It hmm. is time for this politically crippling shyness to come to an end. So he... Um, he writes very positively about Hitchens, kind of even as he's critiquing him. So um, as he writes, um, uh, before I conflate Hitchens and Dawkins too pre preemptorily, however, let me draw a contrast between the stylish, entertaining, splendidly impassioned, compulsively readable quality of Hitchens' God is Not Great and Dawkins' The God Delusion, which merits absolutely none of these epithets. <laughs> Dawkins' doctrinal ferocity has begun to eat into his prose style. 
Perhaps I should add that when Christopher Hitchens was still a humble Chris, he and I were comrades in the same far-left political outfit. But he has gone on to higher things, discovering in the process a degree of political maturity as a naturalized citizen of Babylon, whereas I have remained <laughs> stuck in the same old political groove, a case of arrested development if there ever was one. Um, so it, it reads – it's very fun. Like this is a yeah. – it's a very yeah. fun book to read. He has like a sense of humor. Um, Eagleton fights back. He's very much in the same camp of people like Hitchens in sort of rejecting postmodernism, rejecting the assault on science. Um, Eagleton comes out as much as pro-science as he is pro-religion in this book. So he even okay. has a passage about that where he says, as for science, my knowledge of it is largely confined to the fact that it is greeted with dark suspicion by most postmodernists, a sad enough reason in my view for enthusiastically endorsing of almost anything it cares to say. Um, he sort of, he makes an argument very similar to Stephen Jay Gould, um, the idea of NOMA, non-overlapping magisteria, that religion right. is sort of answering one set of questions about like meaning and morality and sort of the ultimate questions of humanity. And science is answering very different questions about like, well, how, you know, how do things work and how are we all here kind of thing. Right. It's right. about the how and religion's about the why. We're sort of, I mean, not to disagree with two brilliant people, but it seems like maybe they're not, they're ignoring the way that some religious people behave in order to justify that. Bingo. <laughs> this is right. So this is the problem with the sort of Noma thesis in general, which is that religious people do make very specific claims about how the world works. Right. right? Yeah. They, a lot of them do argue that the universe is 6,000 years old, that the earth is 6,000 yeah. years old, that had a very specific beginning date um, yeah. which is like 4004 BC on a day in October. Like they make a very clear, <laughs> you know, they are against, you know, they are against uh, blood transfusions because they see it as, you know, certain religions, people are against blood transfusions or they against yeah. vaccinations or they're against, um, uh, you know, different types of foods because of, you know, religious injunctions yeah. um, that are based not at all in sound science. Um, or, you know, the idea of Noah's flood being a real thing. Like religions do make very specific claims about the natural world. Yeah. And the problem it would be fine if they didn't. Yeah. That, that's fine. And, no, and I think in my opinion, no amount of sort of ma theological massaging ever changes that fact. Like, right. like, you know, in this book, Eagleton makes the argument that Thomas Aquinas, you know, the you know the very influential Christian theologian who sort of tied Aristotelian logic to Christian theology and kind of put them together, wasn't making specific claims about the world. But like he, his goal was never to um, specifically uh, say like, well, this is how the world actually is. This is how we sort of see it as Christians and so forth. Um, so he's mm. yeah, so he says <laughs> about Aquinas, he says, Ditchkins, sort of referring to Hitchens and Dawkins together, who holds that there is no need to bring God into scientific investigation, might be interested to learn that the greatest theologian in history, the Aquinas to whom I just alluded, thoroughly agreed. Science is properly atheistic. Science and theology are for the most part not talking about the same things, any more than orthodontics and literary criticism are. This is one reason for the grotesque misunderstandings that arise between them. And uh, in reference to Aquinas, um, the doctrine that the world was made out of nothing is meant to alert us to the mind-blowing contingency of the cosmos. The fact that like a modernist work of art, it might just as well never happened 
And like most awful men and women, it, it is perpetually overshadowed by the possibility of its own non-existence. Um, so that's sort of him thinking through theology in general. Um, he sort of he sort of fights back against the idea that God is sort of this like guy who lives in the sky, you know, the sort of ultimate, you know, as he calls them, the mega manufacturer. So he says, God for Christian theology is not a mega mega manufacturer. He is rather what sustains all things in being by his love and would still be this even if the world had no beginning. Now I, for the life of me, have no idea what this means. Um, I, and, and part of this is probably my own ignorance. This is where I'm a little closer to hitch on this one. I don't know what that means. Um, <laughs> you got me, <laughs> you know, he is rather what sustains all being all things in being by his love. Well, why do you need love for sustaining? Why does love sustain things? How does love? Yeah, sustain things? this is, I mean, this is where you get into that wishy-washy terrier territory when you try to get uh, a believer in something to define that thing. Right. Exactly. They kind of come up with these various ways to define it that actually aren't definitions. And then when you try to pin them down on what that means, then they go, ah, it's because it's God. It's because it's the nature of God. And uh, it's, it's hard. It's impossible for us mere humans to understand it or what have you. Right. Right. And I find that to be a little, yeah, whatever. I'm not a fan. It's poetic language. <laughs> fine. Yeah. It has its place maybe in metaphor. So you're sort of reaching for something, but everything is sustained through love. Maybe. I don't know. I mean, maybe. that's, you know, and, and to his, and to his credit, Eagleton does say throughout the book at multiple points where he's like, I could be wrong about all of this, I, well, you know? And, and I, I appreciate that level of humility. Here's one thing I liked about <laughs> his reading of Christianity, specifically of Jesus. Okay. Um, is talking about the sort of radical nature of Christianity and that um, Christianity is kind of anti-work, or at least this mm -hmm. is the argument that he makes. Okay. So he says, Jesus, unlike most responsible American citizens, appears to do no work and is accused of being a glutton and a drunkard. He respects the Sabbath not because it means going to the church because it represents a temporary escape from the burden of labor. The Sabbath is, oh yeah, he respects the the Sabbath, not because it means going to church, but because it represents a temporary escape from the burden of labor. The right. Sabbath is about resting, not religion. One of the best reasons for being a Christian, as for being a socialist, is that you don't like is that you don't like having to work and reject <laughs> the fearful idolatry of it rife in countries like the United States. Yeah. I think that's kind of a fun read of that. I like that. Yeah. I do too. Because I think that is something. Because if you do think about it, Jesus is kind of a bum. Like sure. he's kind yeah. of a bum, right? Like he, like most Americans, people always make that joke that like, if Jesus came back, if Jesus genuinely came back, came back, uh, Americans would be scared to, they, he would have scared the daylights out of most Americans. Somebody yeah. probably shoot him because yeah. he's just, you know, he's this brown man walking around in robes, telling everybody to love one another. Well, also telling yeah. them to leave their family and shit. Um, yeah. and, right. uh, which you know what? I'll give him his fucking, fucking shit about the rich. <laughs> I'll fucking give him his. I'll give him his fucking. I will give him his credit on this. Terry Eagleton makes that point. He talks okay. about how, um, like how, he, uh, yeah, Jesus isn't very pro family values. He just fucking isn't. Right. And and yeah. and Hitchens being bothered by that sort of makes him this like, uh, you know, it makes him have sort of the moral equivalency of a dentist. So what he means by that is sort of 
that, you know, uh, Chris Fritchens greets this creative recklessness with petty bourgeois distastes. Um, and, and some of that's true. Like he, you know, life is, uh, let's see. Um, but yeah, like, like Eagleton's very clear about like, yeah, Jesus isn't pro family. Right. Because he didn't think, he didn't think there would be much of the human race left. You know, you know, Jesus repeatedly says in the new Testament that like, there won't be very many generations before the end comes. You know, like right. it's, you know, he was an apocalyptic prophet. Yeah. His goal was to get people to abandon the world and to accept his vision. That was the point. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think that's interesting. Um, yeah, I like that. Um, let's see. Let's see where else I wanted to go with this. Oh, so one of, I think, the, the more prescient parts of the book is his critique of progress. So this okay. is something that John Gray does badly, um, but uh, but I think that Eagleton does it much better. Eagleton argues that progress is possible. And what he means by that is like small p progress, where like we can create sewage systems that lower the amount of communicable diseases. Right. We can create technologies that will save people's lives and improve people's lives. We can do yeah. all of those things, and those are great. And those are things that we should celebrate and cherish. What he is a huge problem with is the idea of capital P progress. Okay. And the reason he has a huge problem with the capital P progress is that it's tied into this sort of liberal enlightenment enthusiasm for uh, a teleological reading of the of of existence, where we're you know today is the best day ever, and tomorrow is going to be even better than the day before that. <laughs> and uh, and he. Instead of arguing for a liberal humanism, which he says is sort of the humanism of Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins and sort of the new atheists who right. put all of their hopes and dreams in science and, and, and sort of have a very scientific, not scientific, but scientific right. view of the yeah. world where science should sort of subvert all values and we should sort of completely mold our society around science rather than having – Yeah, which is – yeah. Which is absurd. <laughs> what Eagleton argues for is a tragic humanism. Okay. And what he means by that is, and I think he sort of says it towards the end. Uh, let's see. Yeah. The distinction between Ditchkins and those like myself comes down in the end to one between liberal humanism and tragic humanism. Those there, there are those like Ditchkins who hold that if we can only shake off a poisonous legacy of myth and superstition, we can be free. This, in my view, is itself a myth, though a generous, spirited one. Tragic humanism shares liberal human, humanism's vision of the free flourishing of humanity, but it holds that this is possible only by confronting the very worst. Tra tragic humanism, whether in its socialist, Christian, or psychoanalytic varieties, holds that only by a process of self-dispossession and radical remaking can humanity come into its own. I love this. I think this is true. And I think yeah. it's right, which is that we have to reckon with all of the terrible things that we can be and that we can do. This is one of the things that... And I need to educate myself more on, and we're going to be doing this later in the year when we're going to be talking about Angela Davis and her book, Are Prisons Obsolete? Mm -hmm. sort of reckon with the prison abolition movement and sort of discuss it is yeah. um, what do we do with some people who are just kind of beyond hope? They're beyond helping. There are some people 
who don't really need to be a part of the broader society, whether they are, you know, people who kill other people or people who inappropriately touch other people. Um, I'm trying to use words that will not demonetize you. Um, although we're far, <laughs> okay. I guess we're far it, enough in the stream now where I guess maybe it doesn't matter. And I don't get any money from YouTube anyway. <laughs> okay. So. <laughs> so essentially I'm talking about murderers, rapists, um, yeah. child molesters. I'm talking about people who, in my estimation, they can certainly be reformed. They can be made better, but you know, maybe some people, maybe they can't be. Yeah. But some people, I, mean, I think most people can be better than they were before in certain contexts. And I certainly don't advocate for the horrible prison system that exists today. Right. Right. But what do you do with those people? Right. I mean, I have theories. <laughs> Let's hear it. Cause I'm interested. We can get off into yeah. tear about this and sort of in discussion of this tragic humanism idea. Let's, let's get into yeah, it. Like, I mean, uh, I think like it depends on where you start, right? Like, cause I, I did try to address what would an anarchist society do with about crime and, and criminals. And, yeah. uh, and I, I think obviously we start with the place that in a, a anarchist or so like there's social issues for most crime. Right. Right. So, a lot of crime just wouldn't exist, but eventually you boil it down to, okay, we've got the person who has the drive to harm others and cannot uh, control it, say, then you do have to have somewhere where they can be because you can't, in our society, we can't have an exile. Like in the past, they would have exiled that person, right? But exile doesn't work now. So you do have to have a type of prison where, you know, they, but where you still maintain their humanity as much as you can. Right. And while also trying to give them an opportunity to, um, you know, make amends for the harm that they've caused so that they can, you know, kind of rehabilitate, actual rehabilitation where they, they can educate themselves. They can, uh, go to therapy. They can do the various things. And we would have to have like a type of rotating kind of guard system. Uh, where they are supervised by somebody who could handle them, right? If they got violent, um, it it is. A, I mean, it's not. I'm not going to pretend it's an easy problem to solve, <laughs> right? It's not one. But I think living in a democratic and 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 egalitarian society, one where we prize notions of equality and right. liberty and tolerance. And, and the capacity for change. Right. I think that even if we maintain certain systems of authority, those can be rationally and democratically justified. This is something, this is, this is Chomsky, this is Noam Chomsky's essential point, which is that power has to justify itself. Mm -hmm. We don't have to justify our rejection of power. Power has to justify why it exists. Yeah. The state has to justify why its existence is better than its non-existence. The yeah. burden of proof is on the uh, systems of authority and not the other way around. This yeah. is, I, I think, a really crucial insight from anarchist theory, specifically Chomsky, that I buy into 100%, which is right. that you have to justify it. And I think if you build systems of reform or in, or in certain cases imprisonment, um, that those have to be rationally and humanely and democratically justified that people come together yeah. and we collectively make that decision rather than the way it's done now. Yeah. 
And where it's just arbitrary domination, right? Yes. Like, so you you have to do the best your best to remove the domination from the system and make it so that like everybody's treated like human beings and you're restoring the harm that was done because I mean murder doesn't do that like right the the so-called justice system that we have now doesn't yeah. restore the harm that's been done no yeah and I mean, it certainly doesn't do that with the death penalty I'm you know yeah. I'm vehemently right. opposed to the death penalty which um you know in my in my estimation the death penalty while it may may be certainly supported by a lot of re- sort of religious conservatives in in my home country um if you really look at the history of the death penalty some of the people who are most sternly against it are either sort of secular humanists or religious humanists who you know yeah. um, who have stood vehemently against the death penalty i am thoroughly yeah. against the death penalty i don't think that killing a human being the state killing a human being simply as a punishment is is not morally justified i don't i do not see the yeah. moral justification behind that i really do i i can't i can't conceive of like retribu- retribution yep. as being like synonymous with justice like i just yes. I can't they're not the same thing in any way i agree with you 100% this is what I'm getting at when I'm talking about the idea of a tragic humanism and talking about Terry Eagleton, because that's what he's arguing for. He's right. making that case. He also talks, I mean, he also, the one thing that I really love is that he's really critical of just to sort of get us back to the book for a second. Um, and we can come back to this discussion. Oh, no, that's all bit. good. But anyway. um, because there's so much good in this book too, is that his book is thoroughly anti-capitalist from beginning to end. And so he makes a very clear argument. He's like, why is it that these new, these new atheists never criticize capitalism? They almost never do it. It's, it's, which I find fascinating. They almost never criticize imperialism. They never, they really never criticize colonialism. The only one who ever kind of gets close is Hitchens. He's the only one. But if you read like, Sam Harris, who's not even, I don't even think is in the same realm, but like, because he's a fucking idiot, but like Dawkins, you know, he's somebody who was born in like British colonial Kenya in the thirties. Like he's somebody who was a product of British imperialism. So it's very hard for somebody to, who was a product of it, who Bennett, who was a beneficiary of it to kind of see outside of it and critique it, which he doesn't do. Generally. No, that's right. Yeah, I will give Dawkins credit though; he did not support the war in Iraq, and Hitchens did. That's the right. big difference. <laughs> um, but it's interesting. Like, yeah. I don't want to give Hitchens an excuse. I don't either. Don't stretch, get me but, wrong. But it, it is an interesting, like it is an interesting, like uh, like you talk about, like the way that he he took on big figures, right? Yep. And Saddam Hussein was one of those people that he he felt this was a person that he needed to be eliminated. Uh, he needed to be removed from power and at all costs, right? Because, he, and I, I think I will, I can believe him that that was it, driven by his humanism in a sense, right? Oh yeah. I think that's true. Uh, but the problem I is, think he's wrong. I, th- I think he's wrong. And people <laughs> wrong often called him, and people yeah. often called him, he was a group of people who are sort of nominally liberals, which, mm. you know, in the, in the broadest possible sense, Hitchens was a liberal, right? The small right. L sense. Um, 
uh, they, we were called Bush's useful idiots in the sense mm-hmm. that, you know, and this is something I write about in my essay on Hitchens, which is that how could somebody who so thoroughly understood the problem of Christian theocracy in America then support them in their quest to remake the Middle East? This is something that has made, n- makes no fucking sense. And at the end of the day, I make the argument that the enemy of my enemy is not my friend. Right. Like this is the problem, right? Yeah. So like his whole thing was I don't like Bush, but I hate Saddam Hussein. Exactly. So I yeah. will side with Bush who wants to get him out. Yeah. And which is wrong. <laughs> which is wrong. Like I don't understand how somebody as intelligent as Hitchens would have ever signed off on George Bush doing anything. Yeah. Like this is the part of him that like makes no sense. But I've read Hitchens' memoir, Hitch 22. And he talks a lot about how in his book, how in his life, he always kept what he called two sets of books. The first book was the sort of the radical, the iconoclast, the one who went against the grain, the one who challenged power. Right. And then there's the other book, which is the one that's kind of comfortable with power and actually would like to be a part of it. And and in a sense, that's what he really wanted. You know, Hitchens became, I don't think it's a coincidence that as he shaped, he morphed politically that he became more wealthy, more famous, yeah, and more respected. Like I think, yeah. like you know, he you know he he went from being on the margins to being in the mainstream pretty much overnight by right. shifting ever so slightly. Yeah, you know, he sold. Yeah. I mean, for, for lack of a better word, he sold out. I mean, you know, yeah. and That's right. and you know whether that works for him or not is a whole other thing. There's a couple of things I want to mention about the capitalism. There's a couple passages from the book that are great, that kind of make the point I've been saying. It's, it is striking how avatars of liberal enlightenment, like Hitchens, Dawkins, Martin Amos, who is a novelist, um, Salman Rushdie, also a novelist, Ian McEwen, also a novelist, have much less to say about the evils of global capitalism as opposed to the evils of radical Islam. Indeed, mm-hmm. most of them hardly mention the word capitalism at all. However, they may protest from time to time against this or that excess of it. That's true. Yeah. It's interesting that Hitchens came from a sort of Marxist tradition broadly, but he almost writes nothing about capitalism. Yeah. It's this weird thing, especially late period Hitchens, where he's just not really that interested in it. Um and he yeah, sort of falls back onto sort of classic power politics kind of stuff. It's not, it's just not that exciting. <laughs> no, it's, it's probably my least favorite thing about, yeah. <laughs> about the Hitchens and actually the entire uh, atheist movement, right? Because that's where you get like when everybody was, uh, when it was the, the conflict about social justice. Oh, yeah. There was, there was the pushback saying, well, what does that have to do with atheism? Why are we talking about, uh, feminism why are we talking about racial justice why are we why would we ever touch capitalism because it has nothing to do with our atheism and people who think like that are fucking idiots i mean i I mean because i'm sorry now that we've abandoned like the silly myth of religion how about we abandon the silly myth of capitalism of meritocracy of you know free markets and free enterprise, all of these other myths, private property, private property, (laughs) you know, um, you know, and sort of imperialism or white supremacy. These are all things that need to be challenged because like religion, they are also superstitions. Yeah. That's the broader thing. We attack them for two reasons. One, they go against our humanism, which for me, 
my humanism is a hundred million times more important than my atheism. <laughs> atheism mm-hmm. is whatever. It's just That's a right. fucking answer to a question. Yeah. And the second part of it is that because we challenge bullshit, we challenge bunk hokum. Okay. Yep. The idea of capitalism is bullshit. It is nonsense. It's this idea that some people at the very tippy top are really special. And so they get to keep all the labor, the surplus labor power of everybody else at the bottom, simply by virtue of the fact that they own it. It's as nonsense as feudalism. It really... Bingo. (laughs) And and, and in fact, in fact, Terry Eagleton says this about capitalism. He says, the advanced capitalist system is inherently atheistic. It is godless in its actual material practices and in the values and beliefs implicit in them, whatever some of the apologists might piously aver. As such, it is atheistic in all the wrong ways, whereas Marx and Nietzsche are atheistic in what in what are by and large the right kinds of ways. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yep. yeah I would agree with that. Yeah. It, it is uh it is this you can see it in the way that uh uh capitalism uh it subvert like it doesn't subvert religion, but it manipulates religious belief yep. in order to profit off of it. Or so that it, or it's people at the top can stay there. Right. Or it subverts radical versions of faith. Right. Or yeah, radical right. versions of social philosophies, which challenge those very hierarchies, yeah. which challenge those very systems of authority. Right. And that's the part that I find very interesting. It's pretty easy to kind of, I don't know, it's pretty easy to like take on God because God doesn't talk back. <laughs> This God's is, got nothing to say. God's got nothing to say because God doesn't exist, right? That's right? This goes back to my whole Vince McMahon fighting God thing, where yeah. he's shadow boxing with a spotlight, of which is kind of is. what the atheist movement for a long time was. Yeah. It was shadow boxing with the spotlight. superior and brilliant because we were winning. Because we were winning, right? <laughs> and it's it's... And I think that if anything, the last, I don't know, God, almost 10 years now, you know, because I'm thinking of sort of broadly the sort of the Trump era that we live in, you know, even though Biden is president, Trump, we still very much live in the Trump era. People say, oh, it's this post-Trump, post-Trump, <laughs> you can call it the authoritarian moment, whatever you want to call it, the sli- yeah. you know, the democratic, the backsliding of democracy, you know, I think all of these things actually matter and they're far more important than whether or not God exists. This is really the challenge is that the new atheists had this sort of view that like, well, if we just get religion under control, everything will be right. better as a result. Yeah. That is not true. People are moved by material incentives. Okay. Do you know who sponsors, or at least back in 2015, 2016, do you know who sponsors the evolution exhibit at the Smithsonian Museum of Natural History in Washington, D.C.? It was the Koch brothers. Yeah, I was just going to say, is it the Koch brothers? Bingo. <laughs> So like, this is what I'm trying to get to people is that, um, no amount, like religion is not, it's a lot like technology. It can be used for good or it can be used for evil. It's, it's, it's a system that can be many different things. Marx's critique of religion was far more interesting because what Marx is trying to get at is why do, why are people religious in the first place? Mm -hmm. You know? And this is where he gets into the idea of, you know, the side of the oppressed people, the opiate of the masses, is what he's trying to articulate there is not so much that, oh, well, people just, you know, they have a drug and the religion's their drug or whatever. That's a pretty superficial read of it. 
Right. I, I think the more interesting read of it is that in in creating a future world where private property is abolished, where alienation, which Marx says comes in three forms. We'll talk a little bit about this more when we talk about Marx's concept of man by Eric Froh. Capitalism alienates you from your work. It alienates you from yourself and it alienates you from others. Yep. What is the one thing that cannot, that may, may not alienate you from your work, may not alienate you from yourself and may not alienate you from others? It's religion in certain forms. In certain forms. In certain it's, forms. In certain forms, it's supposed to like actually cr- cause those things to flourish in a sense, right? Mm-hmm. Like, uh, I mean, whether it does that in the current iteration of mainstream religion or not, um, I kind of, I can see why it's supposed to do that. So he sort of writes about Marx and religion. He says, rather as those with hearts of stone tend to weep at a schmaltzy music. So those who would not recognize the genuine spiritual value have fell into their laps, tend to see the spiritual as spooky, ethereal, and esoteric. This, incidentally, is what Marx had in mind when he wrote of religion as the heart of a heartless world, the soul of soulless conditions. He meant that conventional religion is the only kind of heart that a heartless world can imagine. And rather, as embarrassingly broad humor is the only kind of comedy the the humorless can appreciate. The religion that Marx attacks betrays just the kind of sentimental, disembodied understanding of the spiritual that one would expect from hard-headed materialists. So Marx is always asking, what is the what are the deeper mechanisms for why religion exists? It is directly in response to a social system which alienates people from their work, alienates people from themselves, and right. alienates people from others. It's the you know, it's the heart of a heartless world, it's the soul of a soulless world, it is the opiate of the people. That's what he means by that. And what he argued for was that in developing a better society, one where we abolish private property, where we abolish the the profit motive, where alienation is ended, the true story of the human race begins, and we can actually then truly and honestly and meaningfully answer the deep spiritual questions which animate us all. And not so much spirituality in a religious sense, but in a philosophical sense about the bigger Mm -hmm. questions Mm -hmm. about what is it, what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be free? What does it mean to have agency in a world, which looks like you, which looks like it gives you none. And what socialism is, what broadly communism is, is the abolishment of these arbitrary barriers to one's own self-flourishing and the flourishing of society. This is what Marx is trying to get to. And the problem with the new atheists is they've got no answer for this. None. Because yeah. they're largely beneficiaries of this system. Yeah. They're people who have had wonderful lives as a result of the system that they live in. Their position is largely one of a, of a position of privilege. Yep. That's right. So, you know, they can scoff at religious people all they want. And I, trust me, I do it from time to time. <laughs> I find it. Well, it's more than time to time, but, but, but like, you know, people who bind to psychics or new agers right. or, you know, religious nut jobs. Like the reason that I don't like them has often very little to do with their beliefs. I could kind of give a shit about their beliefs, 
Um, most of the time I'll be like, well, that's silly. I wouldn't believe that. What I have a huge problem with is that their beliefs animate them to do shit to the world. Yeah. And yeah. whether it's going after trans people or going mm -hmm. after, um, you know, indigenous folks or black folks or poor people, yeah. you know, th their beliefs animate their horrible fucking behavior. It's, it's the tool that's been used to justify yes. things. Right. Awful. Because religion can be, can be used to justify good things too, just like yeah. political ideologies can, right? The version of Marxism that I adhere to is one that's deeply humanistic. It pulls from the humanistic well in which Marx was, was, was developed in, that he kept his entire life. And it's in direct rejection of those who abandoned the humanistic components of Marx's thought. And, but Marxism can also be used for repression and violence right. and hatred. Okay. And, and so, you know, it's the same thing to a greater or lesser extent, like anarchism, right? Like left anarchism doesn't really have this problem. Right anarchism does. <laughs> Although, you know, and we can get into a whole discussion as somebody who actually actively identifies as an anarchist, like whether right anarchism is really a thing. Right. Yeah. Was it the book? Yeah. There are people who believe they are right anarchists. They are so right anarchists, right? They believe or that. Or they're right wing anarchists. Yeah. Um, but it's about what you do, right? And this is actually a lesson from the Bible, judge you by your fruits, right? Like we look at what you do. You know, I could give a fuck what people believe. I believe in living in an open, tolerant, cosmopolitan society where people have the right to believe whatever batshit yep. stuff they want to believe. That's yep. fine with me. Keep it out of fucking government, keep it out of classrooms, and keep it out of people's bedrooms. That's what I care about. You can believe whatever batshittery you want, but yeah. it's but the moment that it starts affecting my life and the lives of others, and you start dictating how everybody should live based on your own batshit beliefs, yeah. that's when we have a huge problem. Yeah. And I mean, I guess we kind of already said this, but like, yeah. the reason that people have, uh, I feel that people seek refuge in a lot of these uh, weird beliefs is because of the alienation they suffer under capitalism. Yes. I mean, Without a doubt. So, Think about how many people use alternative medicine or other... Because you know, they can't afford real medicine. <laughs> either they can't afford real medicine or the real medicine that they're getting sucks. Yeah. In the sense that... Think about going to the doctor. You get... Here in the United States, you, know, you got to pay a copay generally. You, right. you get 15 minutes, maybe. You know, you get more than a half hour. That's a doctor being extremely generous with your fucking yeah. time. Let's say you go to a homeopathy person or an herbalist or an acupuncturist or a chiropractor. They're going to spend a fucking hour with you. They're going to talk with you. They're going to ask you how you're doing, how your kids are, how your life is. They're going to ask you all those things that your regular doctor honestly just doesn't give a fuck about. Or if they did, yeah. they don't have the fucking time, right? That's right. So we've yeah. built this like really shitty healthcare system where people can't get the care they need, don't get the attention, and quite frankly, just for lack of a better word, the love that they need, like the kind support that they need. And so yeah. people gravitate towards alternative shit because they're because that's they're willing to take that time. Yeah. That's and that's where the support is. That's where the support is, right? Religion's the same way. In the United States, and we've talked about this before, you know, Robert Putnam and his social science research, bowling alone, right? People don't belong to organizations anymore. We live in an extremely atomized society. Yeah. Capitalism has made us an extremely individualistic, 
and atomized society where people don't know each other. They don't know their neighbors. They don't know their social systems. They may not even be in the same zip code as their boss. Like that's a problem. This is why we have so much social dysfunction and political polarization is yeah. because no one spends time with anybody because we don't have the time or the energy or the money or the other social resources that can make that possible. That's why people like religion because it can give them all of that yeah. in a way that other things can't. And, and it has the binding ideology, right? Yeah. And so that's, these are all the all exist because humans we are a social species. We deeply crave connections with others. Yeah. And, you know, and I would much rather uh, support people who identify as Christians, who are fighting for taking on landlords, yeah. taking on transphobes, and taking on racists than I am an atheist movement, which I think, and it's got, it certainly has gotten better over the last couple of years. Right. Yeah. I will absolutely give it credit. It certainly has. But when I was involved in it, it was crap. And I didn't yeah. give a shit about any of this. Yeah. And, and it was and actually uh, when I was leaving it and I was going through some stuff on my own too, but mm -hmm. it was actively getting worse for a little oh, while. Oh, yeah. It was actively counterproductive. And I yeah. think if you look at like – so Jimmy Snow, who hosts the, the Line Channel, who does a lot of great call-in shows with atheists and they do a great trans call-in show, um, he talks about how he's like, I'm kind of glad that Christopher Hitchens is dead because <laughs> if he had lived long enough, he would have gotten worse. Right. Which I, I kind of think is true. I, 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 I just think the trajectory. <laughs> I, hope, I hope he wouldn't, but it's hard to know. I hope, I hope he wouldn't. But like, yeah. would he have supported Trump? Maybe. I mean, he hated Hillary Clinton enough. He really did. Yeah. He, he hated, really Hillary hated Clinton. the Clintons. He really hated the Clintons, which for all good reasons, by the way. Of course. Yes. I mean, for all good course. reasons, the Clintons are absolute trash. Yeah. Um, I don't know if he would have necessarily been a turf. But he may have been turf adjacent, if there is such a thing. Yeah. Yeah, I could see him being the kind of person who's like, uh, who says he doesn't care. Yeah. And, and, and so he'll like platform and deal, deal with turfs on their level and then pretend that he – but never do so with trans people. <laughs> exactly. Like he's like it's – it's the Dave Rubin bullshit, right? Like right, if Hitchens right. had lived long enough, he would have gone on Dave Rubin. He yeah. would have gone on Joe Rogan. He would have probably like, oh my God. Like, I mean, but who knows? Bill I mean, maybe he would have been – he was buddies with Bill Maher. He'd been in Bill Maher's show before. The Penn question is – often still have some of those bad attitudes too. So, Oh my God. Terrible. Terrible. Yeah. I mean, Bill Maher is absolute garbage. Yeah. Fucking garbage. And I always have to ask myself whether – I'm like, was he always dog shit or did he get worse? I kind and of I, think he might have always been dog shit. I think he kind of always was dog shit <laughs> yeah. and also got worse. Yeah. Yeah, it's not an either or situation. Yeah, it's a why right. not both. Yeah, um, right. No, he's Both absolute <laughs> trash. And like, obviously Dawkins is trash. I mean, the American Humanist Association rescinded his Humanist of the Year award for being a fucking transphobe and a piece yeah. of shit. Richard Dawkins is a piece of shit. And every single day he opens his fucking mouth is a day where he, he just shreds his legacy. Yeah, if he ever had sure. one. If he, you know, yeah, if he had one left. He could have been somebody who could have been remembered in the kind of the same vein as like Carl Sagan if he had not been such a screaming fucking asshole. That's right. Like, he wrote Richard his Dawkins, books. 
just shut up now. <laughs> yeah. If you had just been like a science communicator and shut the fuck up, you would have been fine. But you proceeded to be a fucking dickhead. And I think the moment for me that recognized that like some of the secular movement was beyond it was beyond reform was when Dawkins supported like this super religious right thing that was like anti-postmodernism, anti-whatever, right. and was anti-trans and whatnot. Um, you know, I just think Dawkins is an asshole. And not only is he an asshole, he's also fucking poorly informed because there's a lot of really interesting science right now about the science of trans people that he obviously just isn't keeping up with the scientific literature. Okay. Like he just has a very clear view of the world that he's not going to fucking, because he's an old fucking man. I mean, he's in his 80s, I think, at this point. Yeah. So, you know, it's like, so, you know, he's a dickhead. Like, like, like Penn and Teller, for as much as I like a lot of them and, and, and uh, of what they've done and that bullshit was very formative to me, like they have terrible politics. Yeah, that's yeah Their right. politics are garbage. Like, And I find it funny that like – especially with Penn where he's like, I just didn't anticipate the libertarians being so terrible about masks <laughs> or about vaccinations and stuff. I'm like, what fucking planet are you on, yeah, dude? Yeah, that's right. This is how insular you are. This is how separated from reality – you are with your wealth and your privilege because you just don't like the libertarian party in America are fucking nuts. Yeah. They're, they're very fascist adjacent, if not outright fascists, like they're fucking crazy. So he's like changed on some of that or whatever, but I'm like, dude, you, that was there all along. Yeah. Like that's the thing. Like I got into, I got into libertarianism because of uh, Penn and Teller. Oh yeah. And that was in 2011. And I, it, was, it wasn't long after that that I was like, hey, wait a second. This is nonsense. Oh, my God. Our, tra- <laughs> our trajectory is so similar because I had I had the similar thing where I was sort of – I was really into Ayn Rand and, uh, and about 2011, I was involved in the libertarian movement. I was in Students for Liberty. I went to different conferences and it was just realizing like, oh, wait, like all this is funded by really terrible rich people. And these people are fucking racists and yeah. they are like, they like are like, they have like Confederate apologia. And I'm like, no, thank you. This is Not gross. Yeah. You're all shit. I'm out of here. Um, and, and that's the thing that like, I really liked to kind of bring a full circle. That's what I really liked about Terry Eagleton's book is that he's like Hitchens and Dawkins and all these guys don't want to deal with the politics of this. They cert- they see certain things as givens. And they right. are not givens. They are things you have to defend. Yeah. And right. the liberal tradition for all of its and, – and, and Terry Eagleton makes this point. He's like, at the time, you can make the argument that liberalism in, in response to like feudalism and, and the medieval period was even more radical of a jump from liberalism to socialism because it was such a radical reshaping of the world and a right. good one. But it came – with all kinds of drawbacks, which was the atomization of society, the sort of the Pollyannish commitment to progress, big P progress, you know, Stephen Pinker progress. Um, And it's absurd. Like, I think we as humans, if we're going to build a society where we're going to get rid of these hierarchies, we have to start interrogating the reasons why they exist in the first place. Yeah. And it's, and, and, I don't want to say it's purely like it's all human nature because it's not, but like we do need to interrogate what is it about us as a people that sort of lends itself 
towards making hierarchies, making right. systems of authority and asking those basic questions, you know, like David Graeber does, you right. know, or did, yeah. you know, in, in the dawn of everything, like getting to those basic questions, because I think if we want to build a better world, we're going to have to do that. Yep. And, and so the, the sort of evasion of those tough questions by the new atheists is something that Terry Eagleton can't abide. And I can't either. So, um, yep. and at this point, I mean, the new atheist is like 20 years now. I mean, it's almost the old atheism at this point. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, so. Yeah. Sam I, Harris has gray hairs now. Sam Harris has like gray hair and a beard. Yeah. I don't even know what that jack off does any day, any day anymore. I, I mean, I know he still interviews people or whatever, and he still does his podcast and he speaks in his fucking monotone while saying insane shit. But yeah, I, uh, you can always still listen to, uh, uh, nice mangoes podcast, polite conversations. <laughs> yeah, that's a great show. Um, you can obviously listen to uh fine podcasts such as this one, um, yeah, right. where we do, we do come from a explicitly secular perspective, but we're also people who are on the political left, um, there are people out there doing that kind of work and it's interesting and I think it's worthwhile, you know, um, you know, some who are more in the mainstream, uh, you know, people like Adam Conover oh, yeah. and, and yeah. then people who are more sort of countercultural or, or sort of more radical, you know, people like, um, you know, like Paris Marx or the citations needed guys. I mean, those guys are fucking terrific. Yeah. And I think they have a whole episode on the new atheist. I think they do. I, yeah. I, it's very, very good. I think they have Luke Savage on as the guest. Luke Savage writes for Jacobin and his okay. great, his, I think his article on what we've been discussing is excellent. I think it's called new atheism, same old empire. I think that's the article's title. Okay. Um, I think it's by Luke Savage. I recommend people rec read that article. Um, I also recommend people, and I'm not sure exactly where it might be, but I highly recommend people re try to find Massimo Pigliucci. His name's very hard to say, but Massimo Pigliucci was a physicist who was a part of the secular movement. He's now a philosopher. He, he, he does a lot about the history and philosophy of stoicism. Yeah, he's into the he's, stoicism. He's wonderful. Yeah. Um, he wrote a very open letter about leaving the secular movement. Yeah. And when and I, I – and I read it and I was like, my, my issue – like – because I was going to write one kind of my own critique and I'm like, this dude just did it and better than really? I would have. Yeah. It's great. I remember at the time reading that and I was like, well, but that's not how you do things. You try and fix your community. And then it wasn't that long after that, that I was like, you know what, actually it can't be saved. This one's, this one's fucking toast. I'm yep. done with this. <laughs> yep. It can't be saved. And there are a lot of great folks who still do some stuff. I mean, I think Hannah yeah. and Jake are great. Um, in the secular space, I think obviously I really like the, the stuff at the line, you know, Jimmy Snow and, and, um, and, I uh, think like, yeah, I've got a lot of, I've got a lot of friends mm -hmm. uh, who are still in the atheist movement and who still go to like American atheist convention and, and whatnot. Yeah. And I, I, I love them. They're amazing people. I'm not part of that movement. <laughs> Yeah, and and to be completely honest, I know that th that those orgs are slowly changing. Yeah, and yeah, excuse me, and I think it's just going to become a matter of time where the older folks kind of die out and the newer folks come in, and it'll just change. Yeah, um, there will always be people who will bitch about how like oh the secular movement went woke or what the fuck ever. Um, the more woke, the better. 
The more woke, the better. Isn't the whole point of, of it, that you're awakened, that yeah, you're opening right. your mind? You know, sap sapere audi, right? You know, Immanuel Kant, dare to know. Isn't that the point? That is literally. So the you're point. so yeah. you, you would rather live in a world that's asleep, that's in darkness. Yeah, it's essentially what you're arguing for, and 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 so you yeah. retreat into your petty parochialisms while all of us are trying to do the business of making the world better. I mean that it's whether it's the book bans, which drive me nuts or the going after public schools or going after libraries or going after, you know, kids simply by virtue of the fact that they want to express their own gender identity as they want to, and their parents support them. What a, you know, that whole parental rights shit goes out the fucking window. Right, like yeah. these motherfuckers talk all the time about how much they love parental rights and we the rights of the parents. Not anymore. Not anymore. When it comes to trans kids, nope, that's not going to fucking happen. Yeah. So they're hypocrites. It's only for vaccines and medical inter- interventions. That oh yeah, it's for stuff that could actually save their lives. Yeah, it's for right wing religious fanatics to you know not be a part of society. Um, yeah. which is fine. You don't want to be a part of society. Fine. Then you don't get the benefits of society. Yeah, I mean, right. this is I, I've been very clear about this. I mean, one of the things that we should do, and I've said this before, and I agree with Gore Vidal on this. And he used to say when he'd go around the country and he'd say this particular point, people would applaud him. Tax the churches. We need to stop the tax exemption for churches. Yeah. It is about time that in the United States, and I'm not sure what Canada's like, but I assume it's fairly similar. Um, uh, end the public subsidy of religion. Yeah, uh, they want they want to they want to have pol- their own little faith. Let them fucking pay for it, or they They're need political to- organizations like- because they are. They're deeply political, <laughs> like, and they polit- and they and they politic and they argue for candidates and whatever. Yeah. I mean, people who used to be in Scientology will tell you that you know Scientology would tell them how to vote, right? Um, you know, yeah. and and uh, so yeah, like you Isn't know, there be- like a day every year or where like. A bunch of churches all like intentionally flout the uh, the not political speech. Yeah, they flaunt, they flaunt what's called the Johnson Rule. Yeah, right. Yeah, um, and uh, yeah, the Johnson Rule, which came out of um, came from Lyndon Johnson when he was majority leader of the U.S. Senate. And they all intentionally go against it, so that they all intentionally go against it, and the United States does nothing. Yeah. Um, uh, because, you know, for his reasons as old as the United States itself, which is literally what some IRS person said on a video, um, that they don't, they just, they don't really investigate churches. That's part of the reason that I'm so big about going after Scientology and going after Scientology's tax exemption. Because if we can ruin Scientology's tax, ex- if we can take away Scientology's tax exemption, it's mm. great precedent. Yeah. That we can then go after other religious organizations and remove their tax exemption for their own abuses yeah. and their own creeping politics and for, into public life, their own abuses of people. So, you know, because religion can be deeply abusive and not just mentally. Yeah, um, that's right. And so, uh, yeah, um, while I'm a little more sanguine about religion than Hitchens is, it's not by much. I mean, I, I – I respect Terry Eagleton's like more sort of radical humanistic socialist version of Christianity. I think that's cool. And I think if more people were like that, 
I don't think I'd have a huge problem with Christianity. (laughs) And in many ways, you could maybe even count me as a secular Christian. And if more Christians were like that, I'd be like, well, okay, I'm cool with that. But they're not. They are the minority. And the majority are nuts, at least in the United States. They're crazy. And that's the, you know, at least the majority who wield political power, you know. Because I think a lot of religious folks are, religious people in the United States are that crazy. I really don't. I think most of them are not that nuts, but it's the minority that is so loud and they have power and they have money. And that's how they use, they use religion to fleece poor people out of their conscience in their last dollar. It's really, you know, it's gross. Yep. Definitely gross. Well, we're taking a break next time. We're going to be taking a break, a little, a little um, siesta. Um, Big reason for that is because, Next week, I'll be going to Peoria, Illinois to do a speaking engagement, and I'll be gone for a few days. And by that early part of that week, I'm going to be very tired, and I need to catch up on some of the reading for the show. So that's part of the reason why that break is there. Um, so so we will be back recording in, I guess, by the about a month. So about, about the yeah. end of May, May is when we'll come back. And the first book that we'll be doing uh, – after break is going to be Marx's concept of man by Eric Fromm and Karl Marx. Cause that book also includes his economical and philosophical manuscripts. So it's Very a little cool. bit of talk about Fromm, a little bit of talk about Marx. Um, so yeah, that'll be right the on. next episode. And where can people find you? And people can find my work at justinclark.org. That's my website. You can also follow me on Instagram at justinclarkph. Um, that's the only social media account I have these days that I'm active on. Um, and my newest essay on Christopher Hitchens and God is not great. If you like this conversation, you can read a more detailed version of what I was discussing tonight in that essay, which will be in the newest issue of the truth seeker magazine. It will also be up on my blog, which is on my website. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Justin. Thanks, Corey. It's been fun. All right. That's all folks. Thanks for watching and or listening. Remember to share this show with your friends or on the social media site that you use the most. Thank you to everyone who supports this show on Patreon. I really appreciate it, and it helps me survive, which is essentially the only way that projects like this can continue for me. If you want to contribute, you can do that at uh, patreon.com slash skepticalleftist, or you can buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash skepticalleftist. If you can't contribute financially, then a a like on YouTube or a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or on one of the podcast review sites like Podchaser would be great. If you want to find more from me, then make sure to check the show notes for links to all my stuff and to check out my website, skepticalleftist.com. There you can find the videos I do with my friend Damian Marie Athope and all my old content from the Brainstorm podcast, Skeptarchy, and from my newly retired show, From From Many People's Strength. You can also find links to my Discord, Reddit, and Twitch. You can contact me through my website or by emailing mindofaskepticalleftist at gmail.com. My Twitter is at skepticallefty. My Facebook page is the Mind of a Skeptical Leftist. And my Mastodon is collectiva.social slash at Skeptical Leftist. Thanks so much for listening and or watching and make sure to leave a comment on the video or on my website. Uh, Join your local org, print off some posters or pamphlets and uh, spread the propaganda.